0: This is a CBC Podcast.
1: The Columbia River meanders, or at times, rushes, from southeastern British Columbia down through Washington, picking up runoff. Then, the river cuts west, pouring more water into the Pacific Ocean than any other river in North America. The Columbia doesn't care about the international border it cuts through. It's older than the border is. And it's here, on the shores of this river, where today's story starts, with Bob Keating from CBC Nelson climbing into a canoe.
2: I hate to do this, but you're gonna have to get your feet wet, okay?
3: I
0: plunk myself down awkwardly near the center of Shelley Boyd's homemade canoe. Shelley steadies us before we push off into Arrow Lakes, part of the Columbia system
2: much of your weight right in the center, not push too you know, much on the edges or things like that.
0: We glide into the lake, which is narrow enough we could be across it in 10 minutes, but it's over 200 kilometers long. It's a fall day and dead calm.
2: I love the trees right now. I love all of the colors.
0: Shelley's canoe is a work of art. Red earth ochre painted over nylon, she helped build it with the guidance of a master builder.
2: They look like a sturgeon. They're built for faster water. (laughs) They're extremely light.
0: It's a good thing this canoe is light, because I'm not. And I sit on naturally facing Shelley, so I can hear and record her story. It's a story that's fascinated me for decades. But if I'm to tell it to you, we have to get past a word, which has become a slur where I live in Canada, but increasingly is a source of pride in Shelley's American home.
2: I'm an Indian. And it might not be politically correct, but other people keep changing our names on us. And I know who I am. And just because somebody else decides that there's a name more appropriate for you, if it's still not the right one, it's still not the right one. I choose to go with the first wrong
0: one. Shelley Boyd is a Sinaix Indian from Inshileam, Washington, just across the U.S. border. This B.C. lake and the Columbia system were once a kind of highway for Shelley's people, a life-sustaining highway. Yet most Sinaiaks have never even seen it.
2: It was a brutal, intentional, methodical push to get us out of the upper Columbia Basin.
0: This lake is not what it seems. For one, it's not a lake at all and hasn't been for half a century, but we'll get to that. Also, Shelley Boyd, this great-grandmother paddling me down it, does not exist. Not according to Canada. She's been declared extinct. Her people stricken from the Indian Act in 1956.
2: I grew up knowing I was declared extinct, and I, I know that that was painful in a way that a little girl couldn't understand. I, and, it, and now it makes me kind of tear up, because when I was young, I put it on myself. I I put it on our people. I put it on like, well, something must be wrong with us. Something must have been wrong with our people.
0: But that extinction does not suit the Sinaixt anymore. And they're fighting it with all they have. It's been a long battle that will soon take them thousands of kilometers away from this lake that is not a lake to Ottawa, where these people who are not a people will argue their very existence.
2: There's power and beauty and truth and reconciliation, but you can't have reconciliation without the truth.
0: And what's the truth for The
2: Staggs? This is our territory. This is where we have been from time immemorial, and nothing changes the fact that my Tupia, my old grandmothers and my own grandfathers from both of the sides of my family were born on the edges of these rivers.
1: I'm A.C. Rowe, and this is The Doc Project. So what does it mean to be declared extinct? Logistically, it means paperwork, a changing of records. As of 1956, the Sinaiaks were no longer a registered people in Canada, which means they lost the rights and protections of being a recognized First Nation. But really, they lost a lot more than that. So how does this happen, and what does it take to undo it? Bob Keating has been a reporter in southeastern BC covering the Kootenays for the better part of two decades. He has filed thousands of stories, but there are only a few he's been reporting on that whole time. This is one of them. We'll start when Bob did, one evening almost 20 years ago, soon after a then 30-something Bob started his new job.
2: Good afternoon, everyone. Welcome to our second annual National Aboriginal Day. I would like to introduce to you a representative from the Ninth Nation, Marilyn James.
0: When you are extinct, introductions are crucial. It's a warm summer evening in a park near Castlegar. Marilyn James is about to give a variation of a talk she's given many times before an introduction to herself and her people, the Sinaixt.
4: This is the traditional territory of the Sinaixt people, sort of the heart of it.
0: And, 48-year-old um, Marilyn were... James spent much of her adult life... It was Marilyn James that gave me a history lesson not taught in schools all those years ago. Middle-aged, tall and strong-looking, slightly graying hair pulled back in a ponytail, Marilyn spoke with clarity and conviction. The story she told me that day was like none other I'd ever heard. It is ironic that she has to introduce the Sanaiks here. The waterways and lush valleys of the West Kootenai were for centuries traditional Sanaiks territory. Now it's rare to see an Aboriginal face in towns like Nelson or Castlegar.
4: There's been a real... Blackout of information and education about who were the native people in this area. There are pit houses.
0: This is there. what I've learned in two decades of covering the story of these people. The Saniacs are interior Salish, one of the First Nations that lived primarily in BC's rugged interior and the northern U.S. Their home is a north south valley. It rises from grassy hills around present day Kettle Falls, Washington to glacier-crusted peaks near Revelstoke, B.C. The Columbia River cuts through the heart of this territory, which is long but narrow. The river was both a highway and a grocery store, bringing the Sinaiaks more salmon than they could possibly consume during epic seasonal runs, supplementing their diet the rest of the year. The Sinaiaks lived in pit houses, similar to the longhouses of their coastal cousins. They were remarkable hunters, and the northern half of their territory was where most of the hunting was done. The first smallpox pandemic swept over the Sinaiqs in 1770 and is estimated to have killed three-quarters of them. First European contact was believed to be with famed explorer David Thompson around 1811, but by then the Sinaiqs were already a shadow of their former selves. Next came the usual parade of missionaries, miners and settlers. They pushed into Sinaiqs territory and pushed the Sinaiqs out. The end for the Sinaiaks in the new country, now known as Canada, came when Dukobor immigrants streamed into the Kootenays from Russia, thousands of them at once. The Dukobors fled military conscription, arriving in Canada with the financial help of Russian novelist Leo Tolstoy and the Quaker movement. Once in the Kootenays, they claimed the best land left, only to apologize for it a hundred years later. The 1902 census records records 21 Sinaixt in the Canadian end of their territory. By 1930, there was one Sinaixt member left, Annie Joseph, who died in Vernon, B.C. in 1953. The federal government wasted little time declaring the Sinaixt extinct in 1956. In the eyes of Canada, they were a people no more. A tragic story I first heard in full on that day, almost 20 years ago. Traditional drumming, singing and dancing caps off Aboriginal Day near Castlegar. Since there are so few First Nation members in the West Kootenai, the drummers come from Karameas, 300 kilometers to the west. The dancers from even further away. This is the first time most of them have ever heard of the Sinaiaks, even though they dance and sing in the heart of Sinaiaks territory. That is what Marilyn James wants to change. For James and other Sinai's now living in Canada, extinction is just not acceptable anymore.
5: We'll to start our to, to climb up. It's not that bad though, it's pretty easy.
0: Michael Finley invites me for a walk behind his house on the Colville Indian Reservation in Washington State. It's September twenty-fifth. Native American Day in the U.S., and his house is full of kids home from school. So he suggests a hike up a ridge, his pug Betty on our heels.
5: She us the whole way she always does.
0: Michael Finley is a historian who for a time served as chair of the Colville Tribes, their youngest leader ever.
5: I'm passionate about who I am and where I come from, and it was instilled to in me since I was just a young boy. I choose to live here because I want to raise my kids here, because I want them to know who their people are.
0: When the Snakes were pushed out of Canada, this is where surviving members took refuge, at the southern end of their traditional territory in Washington State. The American government created a reservation here to deal with what it considered its Indian problem. A dozen separate tribes were eventually pushed onto the Colville Reservation, some forced to live next to their traditional enemies.
5: Ultimately, they, they sent all the tribes that hadn't really signed a treaty at the time to live on the Cobble Reservation. And so that's why you have a number of them, 12 different tribes, distinct tribes, that act as one governing body here on the Colorado Reservation.
0: This reservation was created in eastern Washington state in 1872 and initially was huge. The U.S. government then reneged on the deal and took half the land back, offering it to white settlers. The land the government expropriated was the only sliver of Sinaiq's territory left, and they were relocated again, now completely off their traditional lands.
5: The reservation used to extend all the way to the Canadian border. In 1891, they pretty much forced us to, to sell it to them for roughly a dollar an acre, and they took it and threw it open to, to settlement.
0: The surviving Sinaiaks were moved south to a small settlement on the banks of the Columbia River in Chileam. By this time, their numbers had been reduced to just over 250 who were registered as Sinaiaks, or lakes people, as they were also known. They were dirt poor and about to get poor. In the 1930s and 40s, the American government cut off their food supply by building a series of dams.
6: The $130 million Grand Coulee Dam, largest in the world, is about to produce electricity, two years ahead of schedule.
0: The biggest was Franklin Roosevelt's New Deal colossus, the Grand Coulee Dam. It was a salmon wall on the Columbia, halting their seasonal migration downstream from Inchileum and celebrated with racist propaganda. The
6: mighty barrier on the Columbia River will encompass a vast lake where redskins used to roam.
0: That was our economy. That was the way we fed our,
5: our people. We used the fish to trade. You know, it's you know, represented half our diet. Uprooted overnight, that, that'll have an impact on any, in any group of people.
0: This corner of the U.S. became one of the poorest regions on the continent. Lumped together, these nations of the U.S. Pacific Northwest now had no way to feed themselves. The Sinaiaks were encouraged to forget who they were. Many of them did.
5: You have a generation where it was some something that was so hurtful they just didn't talk about it. I heard that a lot from my dad and even my, my grandparents that the, there's just some things that they just didn't talk about.
0: First Nations on both sides of the line they had no hand in creating, know what happens next.
5: Residential schools where they jerk kids from their families and forbidden to speak their own language and that whole story. And so it all kind of plays into an overall hardship for the tribes.
0: The Sinaiaks somehow pressed on in Inshileam, creating a small community on the banks of the Columbia. Their numbers grew and Sinaiaks were often chosen as leaders to represent the 12 tribes on the reservation. Still, most had never seen their traditional land up in Canada which represented 80% of their original territory, but was across an international border. Then one summer day in 1989, more than three decades after they'd been declared extinct in Canada, something happened. The Sinaixt were called home by their dead ancestors. It started with what's known as the blockade, when the Sinaixt officially stopped accepting their declaration of extinction in Canada summer 1989.
1: AC here. Coming up, the moment that things changed, and the Sinaix started making their way back into Canada, many of them for the first time.
2: I'm Jonathan Goldstein, host of Wiretap. Each week you're invited to listen in on my telephone conversations, whether funny, sad, wistful, or even slightly strange. You never know just what you might hear on Wiretap.
0: Uh, I mean, I knew you had a show. I just, I just didn't think that people actually listened to it. That's the breath of your genius, Jonathan. It's not just that you're funny, but you can be cripplingly, poignantly depressing. The Wiretap Archives, available on CBC Listen, Spotify, Apple Podcasts, and wherever you get your podcasts. It's a fall evening at the Inshileam Community Center, more than 30 years since the start of the blockade. Most of the town is here for a dinner, powwow, and celebration of life of sorts, for someone who helped lead that blockade, Melani Burris.
4: My family always says, the people are looking at you and smiling down on you now. So today, i want to play this song for the family.
0: Dennis Butterfly plays a song he makes up on the spot for this beloved elder, noting he'll never play it the same again. Melani Burris died a year and a half before this gathering. The have a tradition, which dictates after a period of mourning, the tribe comes together they're encouraged to take her belongings which are stacked on tables along the walls of the community center.
6: In memory of them, you know, pass it on to somebody else so they can carry on the tradition of them. I have a piece of them.
0: I'm invited to the evening celebration and once there I meet Neil Swan, Melani Burris's grandson. Neil encourages me to take something. It'll be considered an insult if I don't.
6: Just anything. I don't know. She, she is kind of a hoarder. She'd like to You really didn't know she was, but she packed it away so nice and neat, man. (laughs) Until you open the box and just like, holy moly.
0: From these neatly stuffed boxes of an elder's life, I take a Christmas decoration, a porcelain angel. Neil tells me about his grandmother and fights back tears.
6: Yeah, she kind of raised me off and on my whole life. Taught me the ways, brought me to sweat, brought me camping, you know, just with her all the time.
0: Neil's grandmother is revered here because she was an elder, and that in itself commands respect, but also because of her work on the blockade in Canada 30 years ago.
6: I remember going up there spending the summer with her when I was just a kid. It was just a handful of us then when it first started.
0: Melani and Neil's great aunt Yvonne Swan were some of the first tribal members to head into Canada. This is Yvonne being interviewed at the blockade, back even before my day.
4: The main issue that brought us here was the fact that people uh, who were building this highway unearthed some bones of our Mm -hmm. ancestors Mm -hmm. and now they are being held in captivity in a museum in Victoria.
0: Road builders in Canada had plowed up an old Sinaiqs gravesite in the Slocan Valley. Authorities in BC didn't feel compelled to let the Sinaiqs know, after all, they were extinct but were drifted down to Inshileam.
4: We'd like those remains brought here to us so our elders can direct us on a proper reburial.
0: The B.C. government didn't want to return the remains because they were destined for a museum in Victoria, B.C. Yvonne, then a 45-year-old mother, quit her job at the tribal office and headed north. Thirty years later, she's proud of what she did.
4: Elders asked me to coordinate the blockade Somebody nominated me, I don't know who it was, and when the elders ask you to do something, if it's good for the people, you just can't say no. And that's where I I said, well, I'll do my best.
0: The Sinaiaks maintained the blockade 24 hours a day, living first in teepees, then building more permanent structures. They made it clear they weren't leaving without their ancestors' remains. A tense standoff began. And before long, something awoke in these people. They'd been subjected to a century of injustice. Then their dead called them home—a home most had never seen.
4: No, just what my mother told me. She, when I was a little girl, she and my auntie, different times, they said that that land up there is—that's our land. And I was little and I didn't understand, but I made a commitment back then. When I grow up, I'm going to look into that.
7: So what's happening here today? Blockading, stopping everything. Why? No comment. See you in court.
0: the blockade didn't get to court. It dragged on for months in 1989, and the Sinaiaks got support from other First Nations across Canada. The province of B.C. relented and returned the remains. This small tribe of American Indians stood up to a foreign government and won. A stunning First Nation victory a full year before that hot, tense summer at Oka. It rekindled a desire for the Sinaiaks to return to their former home in canada
4: and i felt really a a closeness with the rest of our our people they felt you know like they had to do it because it was the love for our ancestors
6: have your little fire inside and you know wake up to the wilderness you know there's nothing like it feel at home when you go up there you know you belong there
0: soon sanayak's people began making regular trips from washington state into bc to introduce themselves to the people of the Kootenays. The Sinaiaks appointed their first Canadian facilitator to smooth the way. They ensured they were present any time bones of their ancestors were unearthed. They eventually bought a house in the Slocan Valley as a base. And they waited for recognition, a reversal of the extinction. But it never really came. Twenty years after the Slocan Valley standoff, The Sinaiaks were no closer to being recognized as a First Nation in Canada. So they chose to do something bold. What the Sinaiaks wanted was to nudge the B.C. government to recognize them as a legitimate nation. And they'd have to break the law to do it.
7: Although I'm not a recognized First Nations person here in Canada, I would still love to exercise my, my traditional rights to hunt as my ancestors did.
0: In 2010, the Sinaics sent a hunter into B.C. to shoot an elk. Everything about it was illegal. The hunter, Rick Desotel, is not a Canadian resident and had no hunting license. He crossed an international border where his people are not a people. Desotel phoned B.C. conservation officers in Castlegar and told them what he'd
7: done, hoping to be charged. Yeah, I went up there to pick a fight. Never came about. And so next year I went up there hunting and we harvested another elk. And uh, they came down and cited us again. This is uh, 2011. Another year went by and we was just about ready to go hunting again. And uh, Lori calls me up and says, hey, we're going to go to court. They took you to court.
0: Their defense in shooting the elk would be that they have a traditional right to do it. But their day in court would turn into a decade. Provincial court first, then B.C. Supreme Court, then the B.C. Court of Appeal. Rick De Hotel and the Sinaiics won at every level. So what did you think of the decision? <laughs> this is De Hotel on the steps of the Nelson Courthouse after victory number three.
7: You can't ignore those pit houses over there. We're here for a long, long, long time. And for me to come back into this country, or this part of the country, I should say, and... Uh, exercise my, my traditional rights to hunt as my ancestors did. It shouldn't be denied by someone that came in and said, now you are no longer exist here.
0: But proving existence, it turns out, is a long, expensive journey. Going up. It's a journey that's often taken them to a glassy high-rise in Vancouver and the law offices of Finley Arvey. Their lawyer throughout the last decade has been Mark Underhill, and they picked well. Underhill was involved in the Delgamook trial, that other epic court battle which pit the B.C. government against a First Nation. Dalgamook affirmed Aboriginal title is protected by the Constitution. It changed the way Canadian law deals with First Nations. There's two ways to make fundamental change to our nation. Make the laws, or go to a glassy-towered lawyer and challenge them
3: floor. It is by far the best story that I have ever come across. And I think about where it started and, and being told about it and saying, really, really, that they were declared extinct? There's an extinct First Nation in B.C.?
0: Mark Underhill says the case is now well beyond the Sinaiaks proving they are a people. Historians, genealogists, archaeologists, and the Sinaiaks themselves have proven that in three B.C. court cases. Underhill says that's one difference he's seen in First Nation cases since Delgamuuk. The history, as told by First People themselves, is now taken into account.
3: In the trial decision in Delgamuuk, then-Chief Justice McEachern gave no weight whatsoever to the oral history of the Aboriginal people and instead you know, relied exclusively on experts. And so we've come a remarkably long way where the tables were really turned. That The trial judge, frankly, had uh, criticisms of all the experts, but instead said, but this evidence I found to be compelling. She said there's no question that these people are connected to that land and that's what won the case.
0: The tricky part for Underhill, ironically, is the ramifications of winning. The Sinaixt are now 3,500 strong on the Colville Reservation alone. They had no hand in creating the international border, but they do live south of it. Every tribal member I've met says they consider themselves Sinaixt first, but a very large American flag is pinned to the wall of the Inshileum Community Centre. Winning, means American citizens would have rights to an entire valley in B.C. And not just any valley. A valley that generates billions of dollars in hydroelectric
1: wealth.
3: I'm going to have to convince the Supreme Court of Canada that that prior occupation, prior existence, is the foundation for the fact that they should continue to have rights in Canada. That border cannot be used to erase that prior occupation.
0: The journey the Sinaics find themselves on has not been without its internal troubles. Marilyn James, the passionate advocate I met two decades ago, broke with the Sinaics south of the border, disagreeing on how to achieve recognition in Canada. The two factions do not speak. And there are other First Nations of Southeast BC who also claim the same territory as their own. Both the Tanaha to the east, and the Okanagan Nation Alliance to the West say Sinaik's members came to them when they were driven from the Arrow Lakes region. They too claimed the land with the Columbia through the heart of it.
2: ahead and do some landing. I think it's gonna hit hard, you just stay in the middle.
0: (laughs) Back at Arrow Lake, Shelley Boyd paddles me through what is now deeply altered and unnatural looking. Arrow Lakes was once a series of lakes connected by the Columbia. The Sinaiaks were declared extinct in 1956. In the early 1960s, the Canadian government began building a chain of dams and hydroelectric projects where their land had once been, just like the Americans decades before. The Sinaiaks were not asked by either government.
2: And I don't think they believed it. I don't think they believed anyone could stop the river. And it happened, and it happened fast.
0: Arrow Lakes are now not lakes at all. It's one giant reservoir, drained and filled like a bathtub. It's made the B.C. government and utility companies rich, but Boyd's ancestors would not recognize it. Still, they fight on. Boyd has become the third facilitator whose job it is to smooth the waters and educate, to quell those rumors of extinction.
2: Rick Dizitel, standing up for our people and and going out to harvest that elk, in the name of our people and having to acknowledge his existence acknowledges all of us and acknowledges history and acknowledges the fact that you can't just declare people extinct because they're inconvenient.
0: Shelley Boyd and the Sinaiks will likely find themselves before the Supreme Court of Canada this spring, literally fighting once again for their existence.
2: You know, we want to coat that over and say, oh, you're American. It doesn't change the truth of where I came from and where my people came from and that this is home.
1: That doc was produced by Bob Keating. It was edited by me, AC Rowe. The original Sinaixt music in that piece was written by Jim Boyd and Dennis Butterfly. Guitar score was written and performed by Mike Hodsell. The Doc Project is produced by Alison Cook, Kent Hoffman, and me. Althea Manassin and Tahiat Mahbub were on digital this week. Our senior producer is Julia Poggle. I'm AC Rowe. Thanks for listening.